The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 5 of the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. Before we get started, I just want to say to people listening, if you want to ask any questions, have comments on the podcast, want to talk about the episodes, you can find us on Facebook at the World of Dark Ages podcast. Link will be in the description of this episode. Not much is happening on the page right now, but we're hoping that will change. So, Peter, what's up? Uh, well, it's raining, uh, um, so I'm guessing that fall has finally come to Sweden. Uh, except for that, I've actually started uh, practicing Hema. Uh, Ooh! Yes, uh, so I, I haven't really been able to um, try it out much, but uh, so far I've um, I, m- my main focus has been longsword, uh, mostly because that's what fits my time schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm doing longsword as well. Um, what what system are you doing? Do you know that? Um, no, I can't remember. It's it's very from the basics now, so it's it's just a bunch of cuts and thrusts in German, basically. Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're mainly doing German as well, uh, which I like. I I really like the the German masters. Um, yeah, it's it's raining a lot here as well. We had, uh, as we we call it uh, in Denmark, a sky break yesterday. Just mm pouring down rain yeah. uh, and I've been a bit sick so if my voice sounds gravelly it's because my my throat is still recovering all right so this time we're taking a look at liege lord and lackey the dark ages book for white wolves year of the ally this is written by uh, Tom DeMaio Michael Lee and Wendy Soss and developed by Justin Achille now normally we just give uh, um, quickly our opinions on the art in the book, but this time I would like to spend some more time on it because the art is really good on a technical level and it is generally very atmospheric. But when it comes to depicting the time period, there are some glaring mistakes. For example, only the second picture in the book, page seven, has someone wearing 16th century armor and the cover has someone standing before what seems to be printed posters. But Peter, you specifically specifically wanted to talk about hats right yeah i i I would just like to mention the the front cover as well because like you said it um the the artwork is uh, is quite good from a technical point of view uh, but it doesn't fit the the time period as well i i more got the feeling of uh, of of like uh, France in the 70s where a bunch of communists are, are holding uh, a rally in a back alley because it's <laughs> it's it's a bearded person shouting in in front of, of like you said printed posters written in French as well uh, so yeah I, I would use this cover for something completely different uh, but yeah on on the topic of hats or rather the lack of in um, in the artwork and and this goes for most of the other books we have covered as well um, and and that is that hats were not only quite important to show your status during this period and and especially later on uh, in um, uh, in Queen Elizabeth's England there were laws about what kind of hats 
you had to um, you had to own if you were uh, were of a certain status. Uh, part of that that was due to um, um, what do you call it uh, to to strengthen the, the uh, English wool trade. So you if you oh were yeah. a cool nobleman, you had to have a, a woolen hat made from English wool. Uh, and as you mentioned, the the knight in uh, in full armor on on page seven. I'm not sure if it's a 16th century. It could probably be a bit earlier, but it looks very gothic and not at all 1197. Uh, not at all. Uh, for those who don't know, in 1197, uh, they hadn't started adding plates anywhere except the head. They, there were some small, like to the to the knees and uh, and elbows and stuff like that, but they they haven't even gotten to the coat of plates. But this this poor knight has very long flowing hair. Uh, and I think he got his sword from a Conan the Barbarian um, fan convention. <laughs> uh, but he's he's not wearing uh, anything on his head, which means that if he puts on a chainmail coif or, or anything else, his hair is going to get tangled and, and messed up. And, and you would want some kind of uh, padded cap uh, or, or padding uh, underneath your helmet anyways. Uh, but yeah, hats... Um, the, I, if you look at the artwork, there are a lot of people not wearing hats, uh, but there are also a lot of people wearing hats, and and like I mentioned before, it it has to do with status, but it's it's also a, a practical matter because we must remember that um, you didn't have the luxuries of of uh, modern building materials back then, so so your houses would most likely be. Uh, drafty and and very cold in the winter so you would wear hats uh, anyway um, you you spend a lot of time outdoors where it's a good idea to wear a hat no matter if it's uh, a wool cap to protect against the cold or a, a straw hat to uh, to protect against the sun um, and and also there's a religious ac aspect of it that if you were an unmarried girl you really didn't legally become a woman un until you got married then, then you it was okay not to cover your hair up to a certain age, but if you were uh, married, then you you had to cover your hair uh, and and uh, as as a religious matter. And also, if you were going to church, um, and anyone who has been to a Catholic church today knows that women still has to cover their hair when they or for that matter, seen. Um uh, the Church of England, when when women go to church, especially for weddings and other things, they have gargantuan hats oh on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I I would have liked to seen a bit more hats. Uh, I I can understand why they don't have it all the time because they usually cover a lot of the faces. Uh, but since uh, the the artwork are supposed to be like brooding characters and and people shooting glances from the corners of their eyes i don't see why why uh, a brimmed hat being pulled down over the eyes would uh, would matter um and and especially at least when if if you um move the time forward uh, a couple of hundred years to, to like the 13th and 14th century there are so many cool and ridiculous and and silly hats uh, <laughs> that you can play around with so i it's it's a missed opportunity. Come on, where where are all the silly hats and and with uh, feathers and and everything in them? Uh, 
uh, yeah so i if if anyone is out there uh, who uh, is making artwork for uh, medieval role playing games please add more hats yeah um especially because there's also like you mentioned a number of practical aspects um to it there's the one which uh, is uh, in our language called a strudhed. I think it's called a Google in English. I've seen Google. I've seen snood uh, or strudhed. is one. It's it's basically a, a hood with like not not really a short cape attached, but it um, uh, yeah like a capelet to it. So it's uh, it covers your uh, it. Yeah, lyri pipe uh, is, is yeah. the word in English. Uh, so it's um, um, it's sort of a, a, a detached hood, yeah. but but yeah, with with something that covers your shoulders, and then a very uh, well, depending on the style, but a long sort of of, of trailing um, tail, uh, you could say, tail yeah. at the back. Um, and that could be wrapped around your uh, your neck as a scarf. But I've also heard uh, stories of, for example, students carrying their books in it and other people carrying stuff in the tail because pockets weren't invented. So that was just another practical place to, to carry stuff. Yeah, I've uh, worn such an item when I've been uh, downhill skiing. It's it's really good, actually. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and so if anyone is in the fashion industry, please bring that back. It I I'm down for bringing that back. It's a really cool piece of clothing. Um, now my thing is is weapons and armor, uh, and so I want to spend a little time talking about the picture on page sixty eight. Now if you don't have the book uh, for our listeners out there, you can do a Google image search for liege lord and lackey, uh, because the picture that I'm going to be talking about was also used on the back cover. Uh, so uh, it's it's actually quite easy to find. But anyway, uh, I shall call the guy on the picture vampire Fabio, since he's got long flowing hair and a shirt that shirt that's open to the sternum, exposing his manly and hairy chest. I'm I'm sure Peter that you could spend some time talking about his pirate shirt and thigh length leather boots. Yeah, <laughs> but well, well, but I'm thigh thigh length leather boots were a thing, but not not until later on, and and yeah. Um, it's not something for a warrior. It's something for someone working in um, in the swamp. <laughs> yeah, or or um, a horseman, or, or someone traveling who like needed to, to yeah. cover their their entire legs from mud and stuff mm. like that. So yeah. So yeah. So I'm going to be looking at his sword, his shield, and what we generously might term his armor. Mm. Uh, the armor is male. Uh, I would call it a miniskirt. Mm. Because it goes from about his waist to his upper thigh, and it's going to offer almost no protection, even in the places that it covers. And it's going to hurt if he needs to run, because uh, it's going to be slapping against some rather, um, um, shall we say, delicate parts. Uh, his boots being leather could offer some leg protection, but uh, it'll have to be rather thin, subtle le supple leather for him to move in. Uh, so it's, it's not going to be super good as armor. Mm. Um, he has nothing to protect his torso, arms, or hands, and he has no helmet, yet he he has a shield and a sword. Uh, so I'm thinking that this guy is a Toreador who cares far too much <laughs> about his looks and not enough about his safety or being yeah. an effective fighter or something well, like that. Well, if he is a vampire, then, then he doesn't really need it. But but yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's Is it just me, or does he have some kind of tribal tattoos on his right arm as well? I'm... 
yeah, I, I was looking at those and I was thinking, okay, they they could be Celtic inspired tattoos, but they don't look completely right. Um, mm. Maybe they're Viking tattoos. I don't know enough about Viking tattoos to actually uh, say so, but I think they were more like geometric patterns. So I'm not a hundred percent sure what they're going yeah. for with the tattoos. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but uh, for those who are wondering, tattoos. I don't know how much they were a thing when you get into really into the Middle Ages, but both Vikings and Celts most definitely had tattoos. You have many, many historical sources mentioning the tattoos. Yeah, you you have a tradition of tattoos up to at least according to the first few crusades, because apparently there there was a thing for crusaders and or pilgrims to when when they visited the Holy Land to get the cross of uh, uh, Jerusalem as a tattoo and uh, if I'm not mistaken um, the the loser in the Battle of Hastings uh, I think it was that he was um, he was identified by uh, by the tattoo that he had of his own name on his chest uh, uh, Harold Goodwinson yeah, I th- I ah. think it was that one. Uh, yeah. I, if I'm wrong, then don't quote me on it. But it was <laughs> one of the um, Norseish uh, kings that got killed at around this time, who was it Id- identified by his wife mm. because she knew he had a tattoo of his name uh, on his chest. So, um, but I think it has to do with uh, with the influence of the church uh, because it's. Um, uh, according to some uh, um, interpretation of, of the Bible, it's abomination to um, paint your uh, skin with, uh, or uh, decorate your skin with paint. Mm, yeah, uh, but getting back to the to the weapons and armor, the shield. Uh, this is a good sized round shield. It could well be a Viking, Saxon, or Celtic shield. Uh, but we have two problems. Mm. The first is that the shield doesn't have a rim, not even a cloth one. Shields of this time are usually covered in fabric, rawhide, or leather, and people wealthy enough would uh, even give it a metal rim. Though this was only people who really had money. Uh, without a rim, the shield is going to be destroyed rather quickly. But more importantly, he's carrying the shield strapped, while round shield were carried center-gripped. Mm. Okay, so to explain, there are two ways of using a shield. You can grip it by a handle in the center, where your hand is protected by a metal dome referred to as a boss. Uh, this is why this method is also called boss grip. This gives you a lot of flexibility in how you can move the shield. Alternately, you can have a strap go over your forearm close to your elbow and then hold onto a handle towards the opposite end of the shield, which is the way he's holding it. This means that you can let go of the handle to use the shield for other things, generally gripping the reins of a horse, but you can't maneuver the shield as well. This means that if you're using a strap shield, you want it to cover a bigger area than a center grip shield, uh, hence why you get the teardrop-shaped kite shields. Uh, And finally, I spent far, far too long trying to work out the dimensions of that blade. Um, So here it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Assuming the guy is my size, so about six feet tall, the blade is around eight to nine centimeters or 3.1 to 3.5 inches wide, which is about twice as broad as a normal arming sword of the time. And the blade length is about 104 centimeters or 41 inches, where the average blade lengths of this time is around 75 centimeters or 30 inches. And it also tapers to a very narrow point. Mm. So what does all this mean? 
well, there has never been a sword that looked like this, and for good reasons. Even with uh, the broad fuller groove, this sword is going to be incredibly heavy, and the shape of it of the blade puts the so-called sweet spot, the area we, where you can do the most damage with the blade, quite a bit backwards um, towards the hand, meaning the user can't truly exploit the length of the blade in the cut. And as for thrusting, well, you have a lot of weight towards the back, but it's still forward of the hand, so you'll have trouble controlling the point properly. You can use a technique called half-sorting, where you grab the blade with your hand and use the sword of sort as kind of a short spear. But this blade is so broad that it's going to be yeah. rather difficult to grab it. So I, I could go on at length, mm -hmm. but suffice to say the quote-unquote armor is wrong, the shield is wrong, and the sword is very, yeah. very wrong. Yeah, and, um, and, and I'm yeah. noticing that his belt looks like something that uh, a w modern weightlifter would wear. It's, it's yes. very broad and... and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's. Uh, I mean, people might think, well, okay, uh, is there anything wrong with the broad belt? And you have to remember, belts are made of leather. Leather is not ex exactly cheap, so there's no reason to make it broad and waste money when a narrow belt will suffice. He doesn't get anything out of having a belt that broad. Yeah. Uh, um, so moving on from this, this let's uh, start with the intro story. Uh, and right away, the difficult to read text at the start of the chapters is back, and I hate it. Yeah. So um, yeah, the intro story is nice and short, nothing special. Mm. I have no real comments here. No, I except for the uh, for the annoying font. Then then I agree. I I actually think that uh, uh, the introduction story was uh, was quite nice. Uh, I like the fact that they use uh, medieval. Um, medieval uh, time references so yes Terse, that was very example, good um, and and so on that uh, it, and uh, terse and compline uh, and so on it refers to the different times of day uh, connected to the different prayers that you were supposed to do at, uh, at the different times of day so that's that's a nice touch uh, and and um, yeah the, the story itself is uh, isn't too bad either no. So chapter one is all about retainers, be they ghouls or just mortals. There is a bit about allies, but it focuses a lot on ghouls and goes through the clans and their outlook on retainers. In general, I think there was some good information here, though I feel the Gangrel and Malkavians kind of got the short end of the stick. Yeah. The Asamite section is mercifully unproblematic. The Ravnos one, less yeah, so. Yeah, I... Uh I, I'm just going to mention that for the for the gangrel one that it's um, there's a description of of uh, um, a painted uh, warrior uh, and and they use the term Pictish woad uh, and <laughs> from from uh, and and okay it could it could be a vampire or a very old ghoul but um, I don't know what was it it's it's like the uh, first centuries. Uh, AD that that the Picts run were running around wearing blue paint, or something. Uh, yeah, they 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 got conquered or driven uh, back by by the Celts mm. um, fairly early on. I I can't off the top of my head remember it, which is a bit sad. I should be able to remember yeah, it. I did right. a lot of research for it on on a book that I'm working on. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's it's around that time, so it it has to be someone very old who's still keeping those traditions. Yeah, I'm I'm just trying to figure out if this book came out before or after the Braveheart movie because if that's the case, oh, I'm going to blame Mel Gibson. Oh. 
let's blame him for a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, let's. Uh, speaking of uh, the Ravnos, uh, who oh. are not the fault of um, uh, of, of Mel, Mel Gibson, Gibson, but the the way they are portrayed uh, could easily be. Uh, and in to to give you an example, in in uh, all of the other uh, clans, they they have they start the text with with a short. Um, uh, yeah, short story. In character story. Yeah, in character story about how a, a vampire from that clan would would uh, use his uh, lackeys or or henchmen or whatever you want to call them, um, and and then they list uh, different types of uh, lackeys that uh, uh, that are common within that clan. So, for example, the Lasamra has courtesans and bodyguards and scribes and assassins and spies. And then we come to the Ravnos, who has simply gypsies. Uh, yeah. We we need to give them props for calling them uh, the Rome or Romani. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's um, it's it's a very stereotypical story about a uh, um, gang of roving or or not roving or uh, but travel traveling uh, gypsies. Um, and how they kind of trick a local um, lord into allowing them to stay on his land uh, by offering food and women, basically. Yeah, and I mean, they, they also say that the Romani have been wandering um, Europe for centuries, which by 1197 they most certainly haven't. No. Uh, I mean, they, they by all um, research, have not reached uh, Europe uh, yet by 1197 um, if, if they have it is the very su southeasternmost parts of it mm. uh, and the section also refers to World of Darkness Gypsies which is a book that should be confined to oblivion Yes, and, and as another just an historical point of view uh, see if you can spot the problem with the following sentence taking place in 1197 um, finally, an older man levered himself to his feet and walked over to the knights, moving with an oddly bow-legged gait. The gypsy held a clay pipe in his hand, and his bearded <laughs> face was split by a broad grin. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm wondering what he has in that pipe. Yeah, me too. Um, tobacco came from from the Americas and weren't around in 1197. And is is he smoking hashish? Uh, he, he might be, but I don't know how that was actually, uh, how you actually partook in, in hashish back, back then. You could, you could probably use the oils or, or eat the buds, or you could probably smoke it, but most likely not in a clay pipe. No, exactly. That's, um, that, that is, that's just one of, of many problems that, that there are here. Um, we've mentioned it before, and they're getting incrementally better but it's still not it's still not good yeah so so do you want to talk more about ravnos otherwise i i have an idea for them uh let's hear it yeah so uh if if we want the ravnos to basically be uh wandering people uh, who never settle down for no matter the reason and they keep on traveling uh, and and they yeah you want you want them to be the these rovers and and travelers uh what i would do especially in a medieval setting instead of pairing them with romani people uh, which could work if you don't 
do it as wi with as much prejudice and and to be fair in some cases racism as they do i would pair them up with pilgrims uh, yeah because you have from from this uh, well, for you've you've had for hundreds of years, and you would still have them for hundreds of years. You had pilgrims who would travel all across Europe and to uh, the Holy Land and to other places. Uh, the Crusades more or less started because uh, Christian pilgrims uh, didn't necessarily get access to Jerusalem. Um, the Crusades were at many times referred to as armed pilgrimages. Yeah, that that too, and and so you you could have uh, so so seeing pilgrims on the roads weren't uncommon. Uh, so you could still have a group of of um, travelers uh, being looking very foreign if if that's what you're after, uh, and and you wouldn't mind them just stopping by for a few nights and then and then traveling on. Uh, and also, if if you want to have Ravnos as the kind of uh, tricksters, uh, uh, not necessarily criminals, but but like living on the edge of the law and and uh, being being slightly roguish, uh, then pilgrims would would work excellent as well. Because if if you've read the the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, who uh, w uh, they they are from the late 14th century, but basically. It's about a bunch of pilgrims uh, who are not necessarily very uh, pious, um, and and what they do is they tell stories uh, amongst each other, and and you have different characters. You have basically a pirate captain. You have a, a <laughs> corrupt government official. You have corrupt uh, clergymen. You have um, an, uh, a, a rather um, non non pious and, and non celibate nun if i'm not mistaken correctly so so you could still you it would very much much fit in in a medieval uh, sense of of pilgrims not necessarily being uh, only pious religious people uh, and so so you could still have the tricksters and the thieves and and whatever if if that's what you feel that that the ravnos need but it would be a much better way to do it, in my opinion, uh, than having them team up with with uh, raw money all the time. Yeah, uh, and what people might not realize is that they also had professional pilgrims. Mm. You had people whose job was to go on pilgrimage for rich people who could not themselves go on, yeah. on pilgrimage. Mm. Um, so for them, it was a business arrangement yeah. more than it was a, a religious one. Yeah. Uh, so I really like that idea. It's It's something that, you know, uh, could could help resolve some of the more unfortunate uh, racial uh, overtones mm. that that the the, the Ravnos have, especially in this edition of the game. Yeah, and and as you mentioned on on business, pilgrimages in self or or holy places were uh, a big business back then. Uh, they were tourist traps. Yeah, more or less. So it would make perfect sense for for a bunch of strange foreigners to to just claim that no, we we're Honestly, yeah, exactly. Promise. So I, I have three uh, femurs of the same saint to sell you. If, if that's <laughs> your thing. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, if if you took all the bones of a saint uh, that existed around Europe, he had three legs, four heads, and seventeen hands. One, one of um, the few Swedish saints, uh, Saint uh, Birgitta, uh, in her tomb uh, here in Sweden, 
there are actually three femurs. And if I'm not <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think that DNA tests have shown that they're all from three different people. Oh well, there you go. Um, so uh, chapter two starts with giving us an overview of medieval feudal society mm. and what canines can gain from each level within. This is some solid info that'll help people understand yeah. medieval society. Of course, not all of Europe followed this specific feudal pyramid, mm. but most of it did. And I think that uh, in general, it's some good stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, what one uh, should remember that this, this feudal system uh, is basically dependent on uh, not nation states at all, but, but still a fairly organized society, at least with this level of, of uh, organizations that you don't only have lords and, and lackeys, but that you actually have different levels of, of nobility and stuff like that. And in places like Sweden and Finland, uh, there, there was, uh, were still uh, a feudal system, but not. It, it has started to become uh, more organized and centralized, but, but I it's still uh, not necessarily that you would find a, a baron or, or someone. It would just be like the, the farmer with the most land who held control over an area. Um, yeah, in, in, in Denmark, the kings have uh, a rather aggressively been promoting feudalism mm -hmm. because the Danish kings have been trying to build this idea of a, of a nation state. Uh, so, so you have this uh, sort of clash with the old system versus the new system. Mm. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, it, it really depends on, on where you are. Um, but it also, it's important to, to note uh, the the sort of the the power structure within where definitely those who toil the the peasants they're at the bottom but there are constantly um, shall we say strong debates between the nobles and the church as to who's in charge yeah and and uh, also if if you want to set a a campaign uh, campaign in in Sweden uh, Sweden was actually a bit different from from other uh, in that you d uh, other countries in that you didn't only have the the three classes of nobility clergy and peasants uh, or it like it was in in Germany that you had burghers uh, so but in in Sweden we had all four because Sweden being a fairly large country but not very densely populated uh, the the peasants did they they had the ability to to basically rebel quite often and they did and and pretty much every time someone wanted to become king instead of the king uh, he had to uh, gain support from the local peasantry because there were many of them they were quite well armed there are local laws um, stating that people has to have a certain amount of, of not only weaponry but uh, armor as well uh, and how often these laws were obeyed to the letter I can't really say um, probably if, if the, the law said that you had to have a sword you would probably have the same sword that your father and grandfather and perhaps even great-grandfather had before you yeah um, <laughs> so so in in Sweden it was a bit more uh, you you had the difference between the burghers in the cities and the peasants out in the countryside, but they were still quite influential. Mm, yeah, 
so we then have a discussion on where a canine might find the right kind of help, mm. including scholars, merchants, and the like. And there are a few comments that I would like to make on this. The first one being in the bodyguard mm. section. Here it's mentioned that soldiers who muster out of a standing army can be recruited, uh, but that's not how it worked in 1197. Mm. There were very, very few standing army, yeah. mainly the retinues of the kings, emperors, and their equivalent in the churches, well as the men-at-arms of the knightly orders, and you rarely mustered out of such an army. The closest would probably be mercenary companies, and when they weren't employed, they still stayed together, usually actually acting as bandits to make ends meet. So it wasn't like, you know, you you were you were recruited to an army, and then once the war was over, you were mustered out. Yeah. Um, there's also a section of uh, on uh, merchants that I think is really good mm. and gives us some insight into how merchants are beginning to break the chains of feudal stagnation. Uh, over the next decades, merchants and cities are going to do a lot to change the way feudal society works. However, when they mention luxury goods, one of the examples is wine. And I'd just like to mention that in most of Europe, wine was not considered a luxury. Good, high-quality wine was a luxury, but... Uh, ordinary everyday wine wasn't transported, at least not far. Yeah, they, they and oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, just go ahead. Yeah, well, they also mentioned salt, which while it was expensive, it was expensive for a reason, and that was because it was so important to everyday life because it's it was quite often used not necessarily as uh, as a spice or a seasoning, but rather as as a preservative. Uh, exactly. There is so a lot of salted meats and fishes uh, being eaten at this yeah. time so it was expensive but it wasn't expensive because it was a luxury it was expensive because it wasn't that easy to get and it was very very necessary in order to be able to transport any kind of of meat fish any kind of of um of food that could uh, that could spoil quickly yeah uh and then uh, finally for my comments there's the section on jews yeah I like that they didn't shy away from showing how much Jews are considered a separate people in medieval Europe, but I think the section is way too generalized yeah. and paints all Jews as wealthy and willing to engage in money lending. It's stereotypical and it ignores that there were Jews in almost all walks of life, from the poorest workers to, yes, wealthy merchants, some of whom did engage in money lending. Yeah. Um, do you have any comments? No, I, I agree with that uh, uh, assessment, and, and especially if, if you want to set uh, your game in, for example, Spain, who uh, where at this time large part of it was uh, still uh, occupied or, or um, under the rule Ruled. of, of uh, the Muslims. Uh, Jews had a much better place in, in that society than, uh, uh, than in, in many Christian um, countries. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, um, I, I I agree that it's uh, I I like the fact that they like you said that they didn't shy away from from showing how persecuted Jews were, but they they could still take a few more paragraphs to to paint um, a, a better picture or more more accurate and and uh, varied picture of uh, Jews in that time. Yeah, if if you read this section, you you kind of get the idea that all Jews in medieval Europe were Shylock mm. from uh, from Shakespeare, yeah. which was very much not the case. Mm. Um, so, uh, any other? Uh, the only other thing I have to say is that there's a section of law and order that I think is very short and could be expanded because I think that's one of the things that really allows people to understand how the medieval world is so different from uh, from ours. Yeah. Um, 
So the chapter ends with some discussion on motivations for retainers and how to reward them, giving us some story seeds uh, and ends with a suggestion for how to do a chronicle where everyone plays an ally of Knights. Um, and, you know, I, I like this. This is really solid information. It gives you some ideas and it, it might be interesting to do an all ally chronicle. Uh, but uh, do you have any any thoughts on this? Uh, no, I I agree. It's uh, I really like that part that um, that they, they, they don't just focus on uh, on canines uh, and and that yeah it it encourages mortals uh, or mortal characters rather. Uh, so yeah, I, w I I enjoy that section and I I think uh, because um, I I actually quite like um, the the human perspective in the world of darkness that it can be such a very strange and and terrible uh, and exciting place uh, so i i love it that they included um, n not only the possibility but it that they also encouraged uh, games uh, with with mortals um, so yeah, yeah good job and rather appropriately, chapter three is uh, rather short and give us rules on how to make mortal characters mm. cool or not. I really have nothing specific to say here. It's good to have if you want to play a mortal, yeah. either a ghoul or maybe play a mortal for some time before the embrace. So, mm. yeah, that's it's just the rules. Yeah. Um, chapter four is all about non-canite supernaturals and the possibility of making them retainers. Now, I have made my position on involving stuff from other game lines clear on previous occasions, so this was not for me. Also, the information here about mages and changelings will later be overruled by Dark Ages Mage and Dark Ages Fae. Mm. Uh, do you have anything to say here? No, I, I kind of agree that it's if, if you're going to have um, non-vampire supernaturals, uh, I, I would have them just as, as outliers and... and uh, exceptions rather than rules and um it's it's a bit too much and and especially like we've mentioned before that it it relies too much on on you having access to to other source books uh so i i would rather have like yeah you make up that the the prince of some rural place uh, that their um their their trusted advisor is not actually another vampire but uh, a fae or whatever i would much rather see something like that than than just throwing all of these um different werewolf uh, um, tribes and uh, different kinds of fae and wraiths and and everything else and just see what sticks because yeah it's not for me no i mean sure some people if you have all the books if you know the game lines and if you want to involve it all uh i, I i'm not going to uh, to tell you that you're playing the game wrong mm. it's just not for me yeah uh we end with an appendix on hedge magic cursing divination summoning etc i loved this i feel most of it is appropriate for medieval belief about magic and this is something i could very easily see myself include in my games i love the idea of the odd mortal having access to some magic um, so, so I have really no complaints about including this, uh, Peter. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit split on this because on on the one hand, um, I I feel that if you're going to play a human, then you should be just just an, an ordinary human because if if you have access to too much um, 
magic or true faith or disciplines or whatever, then then you're not really just just a mortal anymore. Uh, and so I I so so I'm a bit on the fence if I would use it, but I I like that they didn't make it too exaggerated. It's it's not that you can summon demons with uh, uh, a snap of your fingers or or conjure gold or whatever, but it's it's like the tiny things you can. You can kind of curse someone, or you can uh, you can you can maybe find objects if you look in the right place, basically like that. So so yeah, it's they uh, even even if uh, I'm not a huge fan of this, um, I'm uh, I I still enjoy that they put it on on like a proper level, uh, not to be too powerful, but still be useful in in your game. Yeah, and you can certainly like uh, have uh, maybe vampires uh, thinking, okay, we're going to visit the old woman who lives on the edge of town because she might have some insight that we don't have as vampires or mm. a prince yeah. who has uh, a ghoul who happens to be skilled in alchemy yeah. and, and helps him uh, yeah. with you know with the powers that mm. that he has learned yeah and uh, speaking of alchemy and and i uh, i like that part of of the book of storyteller uh, secrets that that they include uh, alchemy and now hedge magic because it it was a very big part of uh, of the society back then that that this was basically your natural sciences that you you even if even if you didn't know why a poultice or or a wound wrapping worked, it probably still did because something in it had, for example, antibacterial properties. Uh, there are, if you look at recipes for for wound dressings, there uh, they they often include honey, and mm. uh, honey in in itself is antibacterial. So if you put it on a wound. Um, it it will have some effect, uh, and even today it has sometimes been used when um, w when the, uh, the bacteria is resistant to modern antibiotics, and you can use honey. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, it it basically works that it's so much nutrition in it so that the bacteria eat themselves to death. Uh, <laughs> so it, it it's not really so so that will work even for. Um, bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics so yeah i i, I like uh, i like that they included it i'm i'm not just sure uh, if i would have included it uh, in in the w kind of format that is presented in this book mm. yeah so let us assess this book from a historical standpoint i feel like it gave a lot of useful information without too many mistakes mm. the biggest problem really was the art which had a lot of anachronisms yeah. in it do you agree yes i do and i think that if you look at page 85 you have uh, another fabio basically who's, he's holding what kind of looks like two uh two-handed swords one in each hand and he's riding on a horse and oh yes and that one this might be the mandela effect but i think i've seen the very same picture uh, in uh, some kind of of games workshop warhammer supplement for uh, for chaos barbarians uh, <laughs> I, it I, i'm i'm the the the, um, the picture did give me some associations but i couldn't remember where that might be it or it might be a frank Frasetta. Uh, is that his name uh, yeah. painting yeah i'm not sure that it is but it it sure looks like it uh, yeah but yeah except for that i'm uh, i liked it uh, there there are some things 
um, like we mentioned that that the, um, the kind of uh, feudalism that they present is is very much focused on I would say France and Germany uh, and England uh, but I in general it has some very good um, guidelines uh, one one thing that I'm not really sure if uh, if we've touched upon uh, going uh, in this podcast and and that's the power of the church uh, because of course religion has a very big uh, influence on on everyday life in in this time period uh, but at the same time um, I feel that at first in uh, kind of like the reach of the church as it's presented in in dark ages is a bit exaggerated and i don't know if it's on purpose or not because at, at various points they say that oh and and the canines have to be careful not to mess around with uh, with with abbeys or churches trying to influence them too much because then the inquisition will basically come and get them and there weren't really inquisitions that had this kind of reach at this no uh, not at this point no and and in general like yeah you might piss off the the local priest or bishop but if you still had more power and influence than that person uh, there there's not really much that 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 person can do uh, for example uh, and and even on a grander scale like if we're talking excommunication um, Henry the fourth of the Holy Roman Empire or, or Heinrich uh, uh, he was excommunicated no less than I think four or five times during <laughs> his reign, uh, and and he still it wasn't like that his uh, the entire empire rose up against him just because their emperor had been excommunicated. No, uh, Friedrich the Second Hohenstaufen, mm. also uh, German uh, Roman uh, emperor, yeah. he was excommunicated twice, yeah. and the second time he was excommunicated, he won a crusade while excommunicated yeah. giving jerusalem back to the christians yeah. so and, and um, king john of uh, of uh, robin hood fame uh, king john of england or prince john if you go by the robin hood myth uh, he uh, and and the disney movie uh, he was also excommunicated at one point uh, so so while i do understand that they uh, they want the church as a threat against the the Canaanites because it's the struggle between good and evil, basically. Yeah. Um. I I would love to see them um, expand a bit more on on how this is actually done. Yeah. Uh. I I totally agree, and I think you're right. They they have um, exaggerated the power and reach and um, just overall organization of the church simply because they are such a central enemy of vampires especially in the dark ages so it's it's set up like if you're in europe then uh the the main thing you have to fear unless you go out into lupine territory is the church so uh while it might not be 100 percent historical correct uh i i like that they do this because it it plays up this whole vampires versus uh, god or faith yeah. thing so um, as for a gaming book, well, I think it gave a lot of good info on ghouls. It's good to have a character creation system for mortals. And like I mentioned, I loved the hedge magic sections. Yeah. For me, that is a win. Yeah. At 94 pages, I think that the book is value for money. Yeah, uh, I, I don't actually know how much it would cost. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not a bad book. And, and if, if this is what you want, like if you're planning uh, a campaign that either is just focused on, on the 
uh, players playing uh, humans or like you mentioned that if you wanted to start um, uh, with the with the players being humans and then moving on to the embrace then yeah it's it's a very good book and and they even have uh, they, they have like the the story seeds and the ideas uh, for for different campaigns i i also liked uh, that s some of them weren't really that good but yeah just ignore them or, or it's not something that you have to use but they had some really interesting ideas and for example what what would happen if if the vampire that uh, your playing group are all minions to suddenly die or disappear then wha yeah. what are you going to do especially if, exactly. if a few of them are ghouls and are dependent on it for uh, for vitae to actually survive uh, so yeah, yeah. So the only thing that that's really uh, that's really lacking, and I fully understand why they couldn't commit uh, a lot of words to that, is the the revenant uh, of of Clan Simish, mm. um, which will be covered in later books, if I recall correctly. Um, I mean, th the only reason I think about th think of that is that I'm I'm currently a player in Transylvania Chronicles, and one of the other characters is a Simish with a lot of revenants. Oh, okay. um, but. But I can I can fully understand why they they didn't want to include that because that is very specific to Clan Simish yeah. and it would have taken up uh, a lot yeah. uh, of space. So any last words from you, Peter? Uh, no, I I think I've given given my everything on this one. Uh, <laughs> I I enjoyed it except for the parts that I didn't enjoy. <laughs> well, that sounds about logical. Same here. So next time. As always, two weeks from when this dropped, uh, we're going to be tackling Three Pillars, a book that I remember as being really good. So I'm curious to see if it holds up. So it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Bye.